passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. What I'd like to begin by talking about is family. I don't know about you, but I really love my family. My family is incredibly refreshing. Uh, I have one wife and three children, not the other way around, by the way. Um, And I just can't wait to get off work and spend time with my wife. And when I love when I see my children and we're together, and I'm actually extra special blessed because I get to have my father in our home. So my whole entire family is is together. It's, It's a good thing to be with family. Do you guys like family? Yeah, family is a wonderful thing. It's a great gift that God gives us. And what I want to tell you is, by the way, your biological family is not the full extent of your family. This morning, we're going to talk about a really wonderful family that God gives us, which is he makes us part of the family of God. And the Bible even tells us that we should consider ourselves family and look at ourselves like family. This is one of the reasons the Bible tells us we are to call one another, uh, sometimes brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have literally been knit together through Jesus. And we're going to dive into looking at that more this morning, the great gift of God's family that he gives us and where he knits us together. Well, last week when we were in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we saw what had been going on with Jesus. Jesus, we saw two weeks ago, had come into the small fishing village of Capernaum, in the Sea of Galilee, actually in the standards of that day, Capernaum was actually one of the larger villages on the Sea of Galilee, but small by our standards. About 1,500 people were in the, um, the city of Capernaum. And Jesus healed a guy with a withered hand in the, um, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what happened is the Sabbath, the Pharisees actually began plotting his death at that very moment because they were so upset that he healed on the Sabbath. And so last week we saw he actually left the city of Capernaum, went to the shore, the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, and crowds came to him. And we were just shocked by the size of the crowds that came to Jesus. We're talking 10,000 people, maybe 15, 20,000 people even possibly were all trying to be around Jesus. While he was teaching them the good news of the gospel, they all were interested in reaching out and touching him. Because the scriptures tell us everyone who touched Jesus, if they were afflicted with some kind of infirmity, they were instantly and completely healed. So last week we saw how people literally are are crushing, excuse me, crushing Jesus. And he would retreat into a boat so he could teach from a boat because that way he could keep the crowds back. Now, as we pick up the story this week, at this point, the crowds have died down. The tension in Capernaum has died down and Jesus goes back into the village of Capernaum. And that's where we pick up our story. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, please turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 20, and stand out of reverence for God's word. And we're going to read verses 20 through verse 35, which will complete the third chapter of Mark. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. 
And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunders and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and he said to them, your and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, well, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Before we look at the text, I want to give you some big picture issues to help you understand the text. Scholars who study the Gospel of Mark say that as soon as Jesus finished, finished selecting his apostles, which we looked at last week, that begins what is the second phase of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And the characteristic of the second phase of his ministry is essentially everything goes up a notch. Let me explain it to you this way. The first phase of his Galilean ministry, we know what he was doing. He was healing the sick. He was casting demons out of people. He was teaching. And of course, there's always the conflicts with the religious leaders. Now everything goes up. We're going to see that he doesn't just cast a demon out of a person, but in this section, he's actually going to cast out a a legion of demons out of a person. The Gadarene demoniac, uh, when he casts the demons out of that man, he says, the demons say, how many are you? We're a legion. That comes from a Roman legion. A Roman legion is 5,000 men. So we're talking about like some serious demonic possession, like 5,000 people. If you want to use that metaphorically, you want to use that literally, I don't care. This guy's mega possessed. Jesus casts out the demons. You see how he takes it up a notch in this section? For instance, we've seen that he uh, heals people who are sick in the first part of his Galilean ministry. But he goes from just healing sick people to actually commanding the weather and storms itself. You know, there's a big storm we're going to see in this next section. And instantly he says, peace, be still. And the weather goes from raging to instantly calm. See, he's going to take everything up a notch in this next section that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. 
The other thing that you need to know is what he does here is he actually does what's called a literary sandwich. What Mark is going to start using is using a Roman public speaking technique of actually combining two stories to make one point. The technical term of this is called intercalation. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just call it a sandwich because I like sandwiches and that's easy to remember. This is the way it works. He's going to start one story, pause it halfway through, tell another story, and then come back and finish the first story. You see how the sandwich works? And the way he is trying to create his point is by putting two stories together to make one point. If you miss that, you're going to miss how some of these things in the Gospel of Mark work. And he does this a number of times throughout this section of the Gospel. Just because this is a new kind of technique that not many of us have studied. Thank you, Kevin. I'm just going to give you sort of the big idea he is trying to make in a way that is homiletically applied to us. I'm going to give it to you right up front here. I put it in your outlines here. The big idea. My religious background and my biological family are not important. What matters is, am I sitting at the feet of Jesus and doing his will? My religious background and my biological family are not important. What matters is, am I sitting at the feet of Jesus and doing his will? In other words, am I part of God's family? That's really all that matters. Now, let's go ahead and start to work through the text and see how this unpacks. First thing we see is this. Jesus' family thought he was crazy, completely insane. It says, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So, as we learned, what has happened before is that Jesus started in Capernaum, when things got hot around there, because the, uh, the Pharisees were starting to plan for his execution and death, he moved to the Sea of Galilee. Then, now he's gone back from the Sea of Galilee. He's back in Capernaum, and it says that he went home. And you may wonder, like, well, which home did he go to? Did he have a home that was there? Most likely, the home he went to is the home of Peter and Andrew. We studied this in the fall when we first started our way through this gospel. We know that <clears throat> Peter and Andrew, they actually were not poor fishermen. They were wealthy fishermen. Peter did particularly well, apparently. And in the fall, we looked at what Peter's home is like in Capernaum. In fact, if you go to Capernaum today, you can actually see his home. His home was sort of like a compound. It had multiple buildings on it. Um, it had three kitchens in it. Uh, it had a wall around it. It was a nice-sized home. So there's plenty of room for Jesus to stay there and make it his base of operations. It was in this home that Peter's mother-in-law was first healed. Most likely, when we saw that the paralytic was let down through the roof and they tore a hole in the roof, where was Jesus when that happened in Capernaum? Most likely in Peter's home at that point. So Peter, I'm sure, at this point has just finished paying the roof repair bill. 
He's like, okay, finally got my hole in the roof fixed. Jesus is here, and oh no, the crowds are starting to gather again. They're starting to pack into my house. I like to be hospitable to Jesus, but nobody with a paralytic comes in this time because I want to maintain my roof this time around. So that's sort of what's going on. So we see here, it says, the crowds gathered again, so they could not even eat. Remember last week, uh, the, the way the crowds were described was literally crushing Jesus. They were so dense. Now the way the crowds are described is that there are so many people constantly making demands of Jesus and his apostles. They cannot even eat. I can see Jesus. He calls lunch break. You know, guys, we're going to stop talking for an hour. Come back in an hour. We're taking a little break. Nobody leaves. He can't even get out of the building. So if you have a job that allows you at least to take a lunch break, you're doing pretty well. Because Jesus' job didn't even allow him to get anything to eat. And then it says this. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. The first question that comes to our mind is, well, his family. Who are his family? Who are these people that came to seize him? Now, we're going to meet them in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. We're going to see that his family at this point will consist of his mother, Mary. It'll also consist of um, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are his half-brothers. Jesus has at least two half Sisters, and in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, the name of Joseph, which is Mary's husband, is omitted. Most likely what that means is by this point, Joseph is probably deceased. So you have a, a single mom, but she has a, a good group of, um, here's Jesus and his half-brothers, and their adult-age children. And the way you need to picture this is John chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that the first miracle did was changing the water to wine at the Feast of Canaan in Galilee. So as Jesus grew up as a toddler and a teenager in this home with his other half-brothers and sisters, he was not manifesting his miraculous powers you know, to heal sick and raise... He didn't, didn't do any of that stuff. It wasn't like he sat in the high chair and clapped his hands together a couple times and instantly Cheerios and juice showed up. You know, he didn't do that kind of stuff. He was like an ordinary child, a completely ordinary child around his half-brothers and sisters. The only thing that was different about him, he was the perfect child. Like he never did anything wrong. So can't you see how this worked inside the house? As Simon or James, you know, getting a little rambunctious in their junior high years. Mom says, why can't you just be more like Jesus? Because he's the perfect child. So maybe there's a little bit of resentment. There's a little bit of under, misunderstanding about him. A little bit of annoyance because he always gets everything right. But, you know, Jesus has left Nazareth. He has left his family, and he's in Capernaum, and he's been traveling around, and his family is starting to hear these stories 
that they are trying to put together. They've never seen his miraculous abilities, stories of him healing sick people, stories of him casting out demons. And then he's doing these things that they just cannot figure. Jesus is saying he can forgive sins. I ate breakfast with Jesus, they're saying. I saw Jesus in junior high. Then Jesus, they hear, is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, (laughs) that he is the creator of the Sabbath, the one who's in charge of the Sabbath. Not my brother. (laughs) I know him. Yeah, he's the perfect guy. I never saw him do anything wrong, but he's certainly not in charge of the Sabbath. I think he is completely crazy. I think he's lost his marbles. I think we need to go and get him out of there. In fact, what they're thinking they need to do is they're going to go and get him, and it says they're going to seize him. That word seize in the Greek means to take somebody by force. It's the same word used to describe John the Baptist's arrest scene. So it's not we're just going to talk about it in dialogue. They're going to jump him, put him in a straitjacket, take him off to the Nazareth Insane Asylum, get him all medicated up, and have him watched by men in white coats. Because you know what? He's claiming he created the Sabbath. He's claiming he can forgive sins. I think he's lost it. He's insane. So that's what his biological family thinks about him. By the way, um, as it says here in John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, just so you know, to bring this story full circle, his brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh when he was alive on earth. But there was a massive change that happened, and many people don't realize this. When Jesus rose from the dead, they completely changed their opinion about him. In other words, they were completely convinced that Jesus was indeed dead. They saw him crucified and buried, and that he was alive because they saw him risen from the dead. Because it really, that's about the only thing I think they would take... That's about the only thing that would be able to convince family that you're actually God. And look what happens after this. After the resurrection, and Jesus actually goes back to heaven, we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, his family, Believes he's risen from the dead. Later on, we find his brothers become some of the leaders in the church, claiming he has risen from the dead. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now, what happens? One of these brothers was named James. These, they're half-brothers, of course. He ends up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The book of James in your Bible, it's written by him. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Another brother was named 
Judas. The book of Jude in your Bible, it's written by Judas, the half-brother of Jesus. So what happens is his biological family actually comes full circle and begins praying to him as God and worshiping him as God. But it's after the resurrection but because they couldn't argue with that. But prior to the resurrection, at this time in his ministry, it's real simple. They think that he is just completely insane. Now, Mark pauses that story, and he moves on to the next story. The religious leaders thought Jesus was demon-possessed. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. In the Gospel of John, which we studied a few years ago, uh, we actually learned that Jesus has already been, prior to his Galilean ministry, he has been down to Jerusalem, he has cleansed the temple, he has healed the sick. So he is already on the radar screen of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But he's gone up north, he's gone to Galilee, where Mark picks up what's going on. And now these religious leaders are in Jerusalem have heard about what is going on with Jesus. They hear about him healing the sick and casting out more demons. They hear of people going 120, 150 miles to be with Jesus. They hear about these crowds of 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people. So what they decide to do is send a, a group of men to investigate this. They send the scribes. The scribes who are the theological guardians of Judaism have come to investigate Jesus. But here's the problem. This is not a legitimate investigation at all. The scribes already have, um, should we call it, the verdict written on their laptop before they go and they ask the questions. They already have decided that Jesus... Uh, is guilty of being demon-possessed. Not just possessed by any demon, but by possessed by Satan himself, the prince of demons. And so what they are doing is they are on a smear campaign to ruin Jesus' reputation. Because obviously if you say the, reason, the way that Jesus can heal people is because he's possessed by Satan himself, most people will start to run from him. It says this, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. By the way, a little bit of trivia. Why does it say they came down from Jerusalem? Just so you know, Jerusalem is 2,550 feet above sea level. Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. So they literally do come down from Jerusalem. And they say he's possessed by Beelzebul. So they start telling people that he is possessed by Satan himself. Now let me give you a little bit of interesting background on this term Beelzebul. Hopefully I can get this right as I articulate this. This term actually goes back to the Old Testament. It has some Old Testament roots. Originally the term was not Beelzebul, it was Beelzebub. And it was a, a description done by the Canaanites, of their god, Baal. And literally it meant Baal the prince, or Baal the chief of the gods. But the Jews, 
sort of had found a way to mock Beelzebub. They changed the B sound on the end to an L sound on the end, which then changed the meaning completely. Instead of Baal, the prince of the gods, it turned into Braille, the prince of poop. It's sort of a mocking way of um, mocking the Canaanite deity next to them, the prince of poop. And what happens is that eventually has become a title to represent Satan himself. So in this smear campaign that the scribes are using against Jesus, they're not just saying that he casts out demons and he heals the sick by the power of Satan, but they're doing it with a mocking way of saying it themselves by the prince of the poop. Now, you may wonder, at least I began to wonder, why are these scribes and the religious leaders so incredibly cold-hearted to Jesus? Why are they so shut down against all of the miracles and the casting out of demons they see right in front of their eyes? Well, Mark doesn't tell us this. The Gospel of Matthew, who runs the very parallel account, tells us something happened just before they launched this smear campaign. And this is what happens. Matthew 12, 22 through 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and began saying, can this be the son of David? At this point, the people are starting to credit Jesus with being the Messiah because he has just, remember, taken it up a notch. He didn't just do a physical healing, but he healed a guy who was blind, plus mute, plus demon-possessed, all at once. And the religious leaders are starting to feel, we're losing this. They're beginning to credit him with being the Messiah himself. So that's why they launched their smear campaign. Now, Jesus interacts with their logic, first of all. He shows them the absurdity of this. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's coming to an end. Saying, you know, if Satan is casting out Satan, this, that's the end of his kingdom. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. Satan is intent on destroying life, not in giving life. Satan is intent on ruining people. Not in freeing people. And then he says, this is what's actually happening. Jesus explained what was actually happening. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, the strong man is Satan. His house is the kingdom of this world that he is in charge of. His possessions are those that he has bound by demonic possession and sickness. And Jesus says, what's actually happening is I have gone and I have bound Satan and now I am freeing his captives. 
I am not powered by Satan. I am overpowering Satan. That is literally what's happening. And then he moves on the offensive instead of the defensive, and he does this. Jesus warned them of the danger that came with their decision, what's called they could be committing the unforgivable sin. He says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now here we're talking about the unforgivable sin. And by the way, you don't even have to go to church and people already know about the unforgivable sin. They've heard about the unforgivable sin. We start to say, what is the unforgivable sin? And I put a definition of it in here for you. It's not out of a book. It's just out of the way I tried to summarize it. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is after experiencing the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' identity and the Holy Spirit's power, it's deciding to persistently reject Jesus. It is an unforgivable sin because there is no plan B when someone willfully and permanently walks away from Jesus and all that God offers us through him. Understand what it's like for the scribes. They have heard Jesus' teaching. They have seen with their own eyes him cast demons out of possessed people. They have seen him heal people miraculously. They have seen not just Jesus' teaching, but they've seen the Holy Spirit's power working miraculously in front of them, and they stubbornly reject it and completely walk away from it. Not only that, but they give Satan the credit for it. It's unforgivable because if you reject all that God offers through his Son and through the power of his Holy Spirit— There is nothing else God has to give you. There is no plan B about how to know him and how to relate to him. That's why this is the unforgivable sin. Forty years later, the author of Hebrews picks up some of the same themes, and he talks about this. Let's look what it says in in the book of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. There's Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. That's those who were there also sharing the gospel message. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Same theme again. You've heard the gospel message. You've seen all the things the Holy Spirit does with his power. You've seen miracles. You've seen signs. You've seen wonders. If you neglect all that and walk away, there's nothing else. There's no plan, Billy. That's why it's the unforgivable sin. The author of Hebrews picks up the theme again back in Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible 
in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's the same theme again. You have been enlightened. You've heard the truth of the gospel, and you've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've seen all the Holy Spirit does and the powers, and you've seen him transform lives and maybe transform your life. But if you turn away and walk away from it, there is no plan B. Now let me talk a little bit more about this idea of the unforgivable sin. Just so you know, this is a warning-directed primarily to those inside the church, not to those outside the church. Those outside the church haven't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They haven't experienced the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in a life. So it's hard for them to commit the unforgivable sin if they haven't been able to reject Jesus. But those who have been inside the church who have heard the good news of the gospel and have seen the transforming effect of the Holy Spirit and maybe even experienced the transforming effect of the Holy Spirit and then willfully, intentionally turn and walk away, there's nothing left. Now, another question that goes with this. How do we know if someone has committed this sin? Well, the honest truth is, I don't think we ever really know for sure. Because all of us know that the Christian walk sometimes has peaks, sometimes it has valleys. There's times where people are actively walking with Christ, and there's times where people are struggling in their walk with Christ. We all know that. But if someone persistently, hard-heartedly, having known the gospel and experienced the Holy Spirit, turns away from all that and stays that way, and ultimately passes away that way, there's no hope. What does this look like in real life? I'll give you one example of something where I think a person may have committed this sin, but once again, we don't know. The person may repent. When I was a youth pastor about 20 years ago, I was involved in a really neat church. There was a man in that church who was one of the founders of that church, He was a charismatic leader in that church. He had led a number of people to Christ in that church. He was on the board of that church. But his effervescent personality, quite honestly, masked some deep problems in his life, some deep marital problems. And we noticed he started to get less frequent about attending the church. And then... He left his wife and moved in with a woman that he was working with. Just totally cold-shouldered her. And the interesting part was men who were on the board in the church, men who he had led to Christ, went with him and tried to talk to him and say, Jeff, this is wrong. Jeff, repent. And his answer to them was, I know everything you're going to say. Don't even talk to me. And... Seven years into that, as far as I know, never returned to a church. 
Never came back. As far as I know, and this is 25 years or so after the fact, still hasn't returned to a church. Still hasn't returned to Christ. Now, I don't know. Maybe he'll repent and come back, and I pray and hope he does. But that is sort of the hallmark of what it starts to look like as the unforgivable sin. And the religious leaders, having heard Jesus' teaching and seen his miracles, were treading on the borderline of that by rejecting all that. Now, let's finish the sandwich. He comes back and goes back to the first story. Jesus gives us a new family. And his mother and his brothers came. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother's. So what happens is when his family shows up in this very family-orientated society and says, come outside, it would be expected that he would go. He says, no, they're not my family who are in charge of me. He says, there's a new family. This new family is those who are sitting at my feet. It's those who are seeking to do God's will. In fact, what he's telling us here is, as Christians, we are part of a new family, that God knits us together through Jesus Christ into brothers and sisters. And the characteristic of that is this, A, being part of God's family is sitting at his feet, which means learning from him. And B, being part of God's family is about doing God's will. It's not just about learning from Jesus, but it's actually obeying Jesus. Luke has an interesting parallel to this, and I'm going to read it to you. He says this, and he said these things, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. In other words, oh, it would be wonderful to be your mother and be part of your biological family. What does he say? No, he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it, because they're part of a new family, God's family, the church. One other thing to tell you here, he says it's not just those who sit at his feet that are part of his family, but those who obey God's word. This is a theme in Scripture, 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. In Matthew 2.21, or 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Part of God's family is not that we just sit at his feet, but we seek to obey God's word. What are the application points? I wrote them down for you at the end. Number one, my religious background, that's the Pharisees, if you want to call it, and my biological family are really not what's important. What matters is, am I sitting at the feet of Jesus, and am I doing God's will? That is what knits us together into a new family, 
called the church, which is why we call one another brothers and sisters. And by the way, folks, our biological family may last with us 60, 70, 80 years, but we're going to be with one another as the family of God through Jesus forever. Welcome to the family. The other thing we learned is this about the unforgivable sin. We learned the unforgivable sin is permanently walking away from Jesus after experiencing the family of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. If we walk away from Jesus after knowing him, there is no plan B. That's why it's called the unforgivable sin. And lastly, those who sit at the feet of Jesus and obey God's will are part of a new and better family, his church. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for making us part of a new and better family with you as our head, for knitting us together as brothers and sisters for all of eternity, for allowing us to have a common bond through your Holy Spirit that finds us being drawn to one another and loving one another and being deeply refreshed by one another. I ask that you would help us as a, a church family not to look at one another and Sunday like a show that we attend, but we would look at Sunday like a family gathering, a family reunion, where it's a time for us to serve one another, to love one another, encourage one another, sit under your feet and learn about you and seek after obeying your will. We ask this in Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.